This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 254, The Beautiful Island, part 3. Generally speaking, historians of colonial Taiwan tended to divide the period of 50 years of Japanese rule into three distinct time periods. First, we have the age of military rule, as we've discussed, from the conquest of the island to roughly the time of the Tapani Incident. Then we have the age of civilian rule and the assimilation project, from the time of Tapani to the outbreak of war with China in 1937, with the final eight years dominated by the war and the specter of Japan's imperial collapse. Like most systems of periodization, this one can be helpful. It gives us a sense of the big shifts in Taiwan's relationship to the empire which had captured it, and without that sense, it can be hard to dive deep into the history itself. At the same time, this type of periodization can hide quite a bit. Obviously, a sharp break between these periods gives an illusion of sudden change to a process that was more like a transition. Civilian rule, for example, did not start immediately after the Tapani incident, but was the culmination of an evolutionary series of changes in the political structure of the Taiwanese governor-general. Nor do the names of the periods themselves necessarily give us a clear idea of what was going on. Civilian rule might suggest that military authority over Taiwan had vanished altogether, but a substantial military presence did remain, and civilian rule was still guaranteed by that military strength. Taiwan, after all, had not joined the empire voluntarily. Indeed, this middle period, civilian rule, is probably the trickiest one to talk about because the very term tends to conjure up this idea of a soft colonialism of a regime that helps natives rather than exploits them. Indeed, this is the period, more than any other, that's responsible for the image of benevolent colonialism that sometimes gets applied to Japan's time on Taiwan. The rhetoric of the 1920s Tokyo governments certainly seem to suggest this, a constant stream of pronouncements from the colonial bureaucracy about the civilizing mission of Japan on Taiwan and the noble goal of uplifting its people, but of course, the reality was very different. There were Taiwanese, certainly, who benefited from Japanese rule, usually in the bigger cities, usually because of their connection to the economic machinery of the empire. At the same time, other Taiwanese, especially in the countryside, especially aboriginals, suffered greatly. Rural families saw their land plots confiscated by the government with minimal compensation to be turned over to major Japanese economic conglomerates in order to fulfill some new economic plan 
or simply to supply Japanese colonists with land to settle, a pattern that would follow Japanese imperial rule to Manchuria. The governor-generals of Taiwan were especially ruthless in following the lead of the old Qing rulers of the island in taking land from the aboriginal tribes. Exact figures are hard to come by, but we do know that by 1938, just under 18% of Taiwan's total arable landmass was owned by Japanese individuals or corporations. This land was used to do quite a bit, but the most common activity was the cultivation of sugar. Sugar was a growing consumer commodity, and sugar production could be very profitable, a lesson Japanese rulers had known as far back as the Edo period, when the old Satsuma domain had basically built its economic surplus around a brutally enforced sugar monopoly. The new imperial government looked to do something similar, to redress its trade imbalances with the West created by the need to buy energy abroad by selling sugar. And wouldn't you know it, Taiwan has a great climate for sugar growing, especially on the western part of the island. And remember, sugar is not pleasant to grow or harvest. The plants are sharp, the water used to treat them is boiling, and there are all kinds of mashing machines designed to process the plants that are more than capable of killing a worker. In regions like these, as you might imagine, Japanese rule is remembered quite less fondly. Now it is true that especially during the age of the civilian government general, the Taiwanese colonial government did in some ways work to improve the standard of living. We talked quite a bit about the school system, which was rudimentary at best under the military, but the civilian governor's general, starting with Den Kenjiro, expanded the system very rapidly and even opened up parts of the elite Japanese-only system on the island to high-achieving Taiwanese students. And again, this had measurable impacts. As we discussed last week, in 1895, less than 5% of primary school-age children were actually in primary school, but by the end of Japanese rule, that number had ballooned to 75%. Nor did the work stop at primary school. Whereas the military governors of the island had opened a grand total of one university on the whole island, the Advanced Academy of Agronomy and Forestry, in 1911 in the city of Taichung, which is now National Zhongxing University, the civilian government general opened three new ones in the span of nine years. Taihoku College, now Taiwan National Normal University, Taihoku Imperial College, now National Taiwan University, and Tainan Technical College, now National Chenggong University. Yet this emphasis on education had costs. Under the military, the education system had contained concessions to Taiwan's Chinese heritage, including courses on Chinese history and the Chinese classics, as a way of trying to convince the Taiwanese landholding gentry, the most prestigious Chinese families on the island, to send their kids to these schools instead of private ones. Yet the civilian government general removed that concession. The schools became vehicles for the policy of assimilation especially the ones set up to minister to the aboriginal population, a group previous governments had never tried to reach out to. Now, dissent during this period did not vanish. Unlike the time of military rule, that dissent usually took the form of petition and protest rather than riot and insurrection, but still, there was no mistaking the fact that the Taiwanese were still very aware of how unequal their own status was on what was, in the end, their island. Movements to redress this started very early in the period of civilian rule. In 1921, Taiwanese in the colonial capital of Taipei 
started organizing for the right to elect local assemblies, a right that the government general very quickly granted, though it was careful to note that these assemblies would serve an advisory function, not a lawmaking one. The system expanded over the 1920s, with neighborhood, city, and finally district-level elected advisory councils. Those toothless councils, however, were always the first step to a larger goal among these politically organized Taiwanese, a real electoral voice. These efforts were spearheaded in large part by a coalition of urban intellectuals, led by organizations like the Taiwanese Cultural Association, which was in turn led by a young Han Chinese intellectual named Chiang Wei Shui, no relation to Chiang Kai-shek. Wei Shui had been all of five when the Japanese conquered Taiwan, and had thus essentially grown up under Japanese rule. Trained to be a doctor at first, like many educated Taiwanese, he moved to Taipei for schooling and quickly fell under the influence of Taiwanese liberals inspired both by the ideas of Sun Yat-sen and the Republic of China and by the broader post-World War I liberal movement. In 1921, he was present for the original founding of the Taiwanese Cultural Association, and in 1927, he helped set up the island's first political party, the Taiwanese People's Party, with permission from the Japanese authorities. Both the Cultural Association and the party took as one of their leading goals the establishment of a Taiwanese parliament, a legislative body that would complement and check the executive powers of the governor-general. Every year, from 1921 to 1934, a group of Taiwanese organized by these bodies traveled to Tokyo to deliver a petition from these organizations asking for a parliament. Every single year, their request was denied. Now, the People's Party in particular was not just about this idea. Other aspects of their platform included more treatment options for opium addiction, which was still a big issue in Taiwan despite the drug having been banned in 1901. Partially, this ongoing problem was the result of, well, the same thing that happens wherever you ban drugs, people keep using them. But it was also suspected among some Taiwanese, not without reason, that at least some Japanese officials were complicit in the trade and didn't want to give up the chance to make a quick buck. Eventually, the Taiwanese People's Party would splinter. Chiang and his allies became increasingly radicalized by Japan's refusal to grant real concessions, and started to take the party in a more socialist direction. Conservatives left the party in droves to found the Alliance for Taiwanese Home Rule, led by Lin Xiantang, an ardent admirer of the Home Rule movement in Ireland. Like the home rulers in Ireland, Lin advocated for remaining a part of the Japanese Empire but with special privileges for local government. Members of the radical hard left, meanwhile, gravitated to the Taiwanese Communist Party, which had been founded in 1927, or at least they did if they could find it, since the Japanese repressed the party in Taiwan about as effectively as they had its Japanese sister party and forced the membership deep underground. Other Taiwanese did not want a Taiwanese parliament but something else, the right to elect representatives to the imperial diet in Tokyo, to be granted the same voting privileges Japanese subjects enjoyed. This idea, at least, was a bit more palatable to the whole idea of assimilation. After all, if the goal was to assimilate the Taiwanese into Japanese society, that would naturally include the rights of citizenship. However, the idea always floundered when it came to the particulars because of one chief concern among more conservative members of the Japanese government. If Taiwanese, and probably also Koreans, got the vote, 
and got representation in anything proportionate to their numbers, they would present a very substantive voting bloc, one that could have real influence over policy. And that was a bit of a disturbing prospect. Could the conquered and conqueror really share political leadership like that? Wouldn't that be an upset of the entire relationship upon which the colonial project was built, that the Japanese were on top and everyone else was on the bottom? By 1930, then, Taiwan was an island at a crossroads. Its natives were pulled between a sense of independent destiny and a seeming inevitability of Japanese overlordship, which looked like it was not going anywhere anytime soon. And it was at this moment that probably the best-known revolt against Japanese rule on the island broke out. What became known to history as the Musha Incident had its roots in the Japanese government's aboriginal policies, and incidentally, I originally intended this to be one episode just on the Musha incident before it evolved into a whole long series on the Taiwanese colony more generally. Unlike the previous military government, the civilian government general was not content to keep Taiwan's aboriginals up in their mountain holdfasts and leave them more or less unbothered except for the occasional gunpoint foray to take more of their land. This was, after all, Japan's chance to prove itself as a real great power by taking on the same thing so many other Western great powers had, an honest-to-God, civilizing mission. The idea of civilizing the Koreans or the Chinese always felt a little weird, because so much of Japanese civilization itself was grounded in their ideas. But Taiwan's aboriginals in the colonial mindset of the day, this was open season. These people were on the bottom rung of a ladder of civilization imported from the West and thus they required a stern hand to guide them to civilization, so to speak. And if the Japanese could be the ones to do it, they'd be proving themselves, once again, the equal of the West. Where Han Chinese were, under civilian rule, exempt from older military-era punishments like caning for violations of the law, aboriginals, Saban or raw barbarians was the term used by the Japanese, were still subject to such treatment. In a process broadly reminiscent of policies implemented by the U.S. government towards Native Americans around the same time, aboriginals were rounded up and forced into agricultural work and re-education, a process designed to civilize them through exposure to Japanese culture and to labor, and incidentally to disarm them during the relocation process. Any attempt to resist was met with military force. The Cetic peoples of eastern and central Taiwan were, early on, a showcase people for this policy, or so it seemed. Their chief, Mona Rudao, had actually been on a tour in Japan in the 1920s, invited to show off the success of the civilizing mission. Cedics, especially younger members of the tribe, were usually Japanese-educated, had grown up bicultural, and they seemed to presage a future in which Taiwan's aboriginals were incorporated into the mainstream. The idea that the Cedics could revolt was simply unthinkable to the Japanese government general. After all, they'd done so very well. Yet resentment lingered among the Cedic at Japanese policies that were tailor-made to annihilate the traditional culture and forcibly relocate them, and at the disdain with which the Japanese treated them. So the Cedic, led by Mona Rudao, began to plan, and on October 27, 1930, they launched their attack. A series of coordinated raids by Cedic tribal members on police stations across Renai Township, where the majority of the Cedic population was located, let the tribe secure weapons. 
At the same time, a group of 300 Cedic warriors converged on a target of opportunity, Mushaji Elementary School, one of the schools in the Japanese-only school system. On that day, the school was holding a large sports festival, which was drawing a good-sized crowd. The Cedic descended on this crowd and killed 134 people, including several women and children. All of them were Japanese colonists of the island except for two, Han Chinese who were wearing Japanese-style clothes and thus were mistaken for Japanese. Over 200 more people were injured. To be honest, I've never really found a clear answer as to why Mushaji was the target chosen. My guess would be the festival and the large crowd of colonists it attracted, because after all, if they're all in one place, they're much easier to target. And such an attack would and did send a really clear message to the government general about the cost of attempting to impose itself on the region. That's just a guess on my part, because it will not surprise you to find out, none of the leadership was around to answer any questions after the fact. The response, after all, was exactly what you could guess. The governor general at the time, Ishizuka Ezo, also a civilian, a lawyer by trade, declared martial law in the region and a press blackout and mobilized 2,000 troops to go in after the Cedic. That proved easier said than done, however, the Cedic had captured a large number of weapons, and their home in Renai was fairly mountainous, being a pretty good distance inland. As such, they were able to rely on ambush tactics, striking the Japanese troops where they least expected it, and melting away any time the Japanese showed up in force. For the first few weeks after the earliest attacks, it looked like the uprising might well last into 1931. Very little progress was being made bringing the area back under control. However, Ishizuka had one more card to play, one so terrible, I sincerely doubt the Cedic had planned for it at all. Ishizuka requested permission to bring in a large volume of mustard gas bombs and to use them against Cedic villages, and he got it. A series of coordinated gas attacks on Cedic civilians crushed any will to resist. By December, Mona Rudao had committed suicide to avoid capture, and the revolt was over. Of the 1,200 Cedic warriors who participated in the uprising, over half were dead. Thanks to the press blackout, Cedic civilian casualties and Japanese military casualties were unknown. Now, it's worth noting that the Cedic tribe did survive both their defeat and the Japanese reprisals in attacked. The tribe still exists to this very day, and as commemorations of the Musha incident have become more common, and as it has taken more and more of a role in the nationalist narrative of Taiwanese history, their political fortunes as a tribe have been on the rise. For example, for a long time the Cedic were actually not recognized as an independent tribe, but as a branch of the Atayel tribe. They got their recognition in 2008, as public awareness of the Musha incident started to spread in modern Taiwan. Now, the Musha incident was an important landmark for Japanese rule in Taiwan, and for the empire as a whole, for a couple of reasons. First and most obviously, this was the first time the Imperial Japanese military would deploy chemical weapons on a battlefield. It would not be the last. Perhaps because of the very brutality with which it was repressed, the Musha incident also represents the last instance of armed resistance against Japanese rule on Taiwan. In the immediate wake of the incident, Aboriginal policy became quite a bit sterner. Mandatory education in Japanese-run schools was made longer so as to more quickly assimilate the natives, and relocation efforts were stepped up. Japanese-run youth groups were set up in Aboriginal villages, 
1937, attendance at those groups became mandatory. At the same time, the Musha incident is interesting because it didn't lead to a return to a military crackdown on an island-wide scale. Aboriginal life got quite a bit harder, but if anything, the government became more receptive to the demands of the Han Chinese population. For example, in 1934, the island got its first seats in the Diet. Emperor Hirohito nominated a series of Han Chinese to the House of Peers, the upper house modeled on Britain's House of Lords. Among their number was none other than Gu Xianrong, the merchant who had negotiated the surrender of Taipei to the Japanese way back in 1895. The very next year, genuine provincial assemblies that were democratically elected and which were allowed some control over local policy, were convened for the very first time. Interestingly enough, none of these policies were reversed, even as the civilian governments back in Tokyo that initiated them fell before the rise of the military. Japan's last real pre-war elected government collapsed in 1932 with the assassination of Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi. Though the Diet continued to meet throughout the war, and theoretically the civilian government continued to function, civilian leadership was now clearly subordinate to the military in Tokyo, if for no other reason than that very few politicians were willing to risk being stabbed over their policies. And yet, even as military rule loomed over the country, nobody in the military seemed to seriously consider changing course on Taiwan and returning to the old style of direct military government or indeed of making the post of governor-general a military one again, at least not right away. It had become clear in Tokyo to everyone that the policy of assimilation was really the only way forward and that it needed some genuine carrots, the benefits of citizenship, along with the stick. The final years of the civilian government-general in Taiwan were dominated by this theme. On the one hand, Taiwanese, especially Han Chinese Taiwanese living along the coast in urban areas, started to get real perks from the government. The assemblies, which were far easier for urban people to follow and engage with since they were in the big cities, increased legal rights and access to the court system, increased quotas for Taiwanese in the island's universities, things like that. At the same time, the policy of assimilation was being stepped up, as if the Musha incident had revealed a real sense of urgency to eradicate Taiwanese identity once and for all to prevent future uprisings. Japanese language became mandatory in the schools, and pressure to take a Japanese-style name with a two-character surname and two-character first name instead of the one-character surname, two-character first name typical in Chinese also increased, though it did not become mandatory. Worship at Shinto Shrine set up in Taiwan, the largest of which was Taiwan Grand Shrine in Taipei, became mandatory for school-aged children, and was encouraged for everyone else. Now, the big turning point for Tokyo's Taiwan policies was 1937 and the outbreak of war with China. The war in China was supposed to be over in a matter of months. Though the outbreak of this specific crisis had not been planned, it had been pretty obvious that tensions between Japan and the Republic of China were on the rise, so nobody was really surprised when war did break out over a skirmish in Beijing. Japan's military leaders were confident that, as had happened in the past, the two sides would fight a few battles, which the Japanese would inevitably win, and the Chinese would come to the bargaining table and offer more concessions to Japan. That's how the script had played out every other time. 
except of course that the force of Chinese nationalism and anti-Japanese sentiment had grown very strong in China. A year before the outbreak of war, the leader of the republic, Chiang Kai-shek himself, had been kidnapped and forced to sign an anti-Japanese alliance with his most hated enemies, the communists, at gunpoint by one of his own generals. While that general, Zhang Shui-liang, was placed under permanent house arrest for doing this, Chiang also did not break the alliance. He clearly understood he couldn't walk back out of his promise, or the same thing, or substantially worse, could happen to him again. Yet nobody in Tokyo was able to read the signs that this time things would not go as they had before, and so they were cut off guard when, even after a string of military defeats that saw the Republic lose control of most of China's most important coastal cities, even after Japanese forces committed one of the blackest atrocities in the history of modern war in Nanjing, even after the Chinese government was forced to retreat all the way to Sichuan and blow up the dams of the Yellow River, killing millions of their own citizens in the process in order to slow the Japanese down, the Republic of China still was not prepared to cave in. The result among Japanese leaders was a decision to go all in on China. They would mobilize the nation for protracted war and gamble that decades of propaganda campaigns, a more advanced and less war-ravaged system of government bureaucracy, and a more professional army would allow them to just outlast the Chinese and get a settlement on terms they wanted. Taiwan naturally was included in the mass mobilization, though at this point, Taiwanese were not considered reliable enough to be subject to conscription. Around this time, a new word started to be thrown around in the halls of the colonial bureaucracy in Tokyo, a new term for policies in Korea and Taiwan, kolminka. This is a hard word to translate. Ko is the term for emperor, the no in tenno. Min is people. Ka indicates change, essentially. So probably the best direct translation is imperialization, or imperialization of the people. You can see why most English-language works just use kolminka instead. In this line of thinking, Japanese citizens, thanks to decades of education and propaganda, were already kolmin. They were already imperial people who knew their obligations to their emperor. This was, it was understood, something far more profound than just being shimin, subjects of the emperor. A subject is passive. They accepted their subordination to the laws of the land. A kolmin is active. They strive to pay back the emperor for everything the emperor has quote-unquote done for them. Think of it this way. A subject pays their taxes on time and reports dutifully for screening if they get a draft notice. A kolmin does those things, also fundraises for the war effort in their spare time, and takes the time to annoy their fellow draftees with patriotic songs during the screening process. The goal of the bureaucrats was to inculcate Japan's colonial population with the same levels of Komen enthusiasm that, at least according to government propaganda, average Japanese people were displaying in their support for war in China. Some of that propaganda was, by the way, obviously overblown, but it is impossible to deny that early on, when victory looked possible, there was genuine enthusiasm for the war in China among average Japanese most of the time. And of course there would be, Regardless of the cause, everyone loves a winner. But anyway, how to translate that enthusiasm over to the colonies? 
What would it look like in practice to convince Taiwanese and Koreans that they had as much to contribute to the empire and as much to sacrifice on its behalf as the Japanese who quote-unquote founded it? In practice, the actual policies of Komenka looked like a vastly accelerated version of the assimilation program. Efforts to promote the Japanese language and to promote the use of Japanese names were stepped up, and in 1940, the Taiwanese parliament was convinced to voluntarily pass a law supporting the adoption of Japanese names, though it was not technically made mandatory. Shinto worship was also heavily encouraged, though it never became compulsory. Finally, in 1941, as War with the West started to loom, it was announced that Taiwanese volunteers would be allowed to sign up and serve their emperor in the military, or at least in the army, as the navy was too worried about potential sabotage to accept colonial soldiers. Next week, we'll take a look at what these policies were like for the people who lived them, as well as the experience of the Taiwan handover, and the lingering impact of the colonial experience on Japanese-Taiwanese relations. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Kaylee Burgess and to Natasha Mitchell for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part four.